Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back after a very long hiatus. I am myself and dog are very excited to see everybody. Erin, how you doing, lady? I'm good. I'm dog sitting. So Rooney is here and a little jealous that my attention's not with her. So So folks, if this version versus the podcast version have slight puppy irregularities, please be sure to thank your local editor. But yes, so we today are rehashing ASHA 2021 Rising United and ASHA 2021 Rising United was delightful for the usual. Our livers may or may not have taken one for the team on Friday night after all of the nerdy SLP ones, but I think that's everybody's liver post ASHA. <laughs> fair, fair. If you guys haven't been to an ASHA, you don't know what you're missing. So come one, come all. Special shout out to our very dear friend, the one and only Kristen West, who is here. Erin and I may or may not have completely geeked out over her lecture where she went through and analyzed all of the case studies for why we should be treating and assessing PFD in the public schools. 
Also, sidebar, she is a lot more than just PFD in the public schools. She has experience in multiple settings, private practice, and is an uh, associate professor at, what is it, Edinburgh? Is that how you say this word? Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So, Kristen, thank you for joining us. No pressure. Don't suck, Michelle. We're good. <laughs> okay. So, Erin, please give us a quick update on all of the things that have happened since our last lecture um, roughly six weeks ago. <laughs> I know a lot. And life and what? Um, and all of the above. The holidays happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I went home for Christmas, which was great. Wait, can I toot your horn? Because I know that you won't toot your horn. I know you will anyways. Yes. Okay. Yay. Folks, she got accepted into the ASHA Leadership Development Program for the 2022 cohort. And two days later, found out that she was the recipient of the Special Recognition Award from the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association for all of her volunteer work advising for the statewide baby net, as well as the autism manuals. Erin's volunteer work is profound and our state and everyone associated with it is better because of her. So I'm not going to cry. I'm going to cry a little bit. Well, I would also like to say that Michelle Dawson got an award at ASHA and didn't tell me and then said, oh, I have like an award ceremony to go to today. And I was like, Michelle, why didn't you tell me about it? She's like, I don't know. Just, I just told them I would go. And then come to find out she got, what was the name of the award? Because you wouldn't even tell me that. It was the State Clinical Achievement Award for creating the first PFD clinic at a university level in the state of South Carolina. So I tried to sneak my way into the award ceremony, but I couldn't because she didn't tell me about it. So yeah, so I tried to toot your horn, but you are too sneaky about it. Yeah, because social anxiety. So I just didn't tell anybody, including my husband, who when he found out was um, <laughs> not happy. I told him. Bride. Yeah, I know you did. And then he was like, I'm sorry. What the heck? No, so I, it turns I out- <laughs> told someone who I thought was him and then re- realized I saved his new number in Christian Dawson knew. So I was texting a random lady who was like, I don't, this is my wife. And I was like, well, <laughs> first she was like, well, I'm a woman. And I said, you can still have a wife. And then she said, well, this isn't mine. So So the biggest takeaway from ASHA 2021 is maybe don't not tell your people that you have a major life event going on. And yes, we just cheered you on from the bar across the street. Yes, it was great. Yes, that was fun. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now I have also, I have started my second floor time course. Yes. So I'm a basic floor time provider. Yes. That's just their first level. So I'm in the next level and I'm obsessed. And if anyone hasn't heard of floor time or just wants to look it up, I'm going through the ICDL program and it's the DIR floor time. And we'll talk more about it. I'm sure we'll have podcasts about it. We'll have guests on that are more experienced in it than I am, but it's been wonderful. So I highly recommend it if no one has looked into it. Yes. Yes. So um, basically we continue to be lifelong learners on all fronts. We try not to, but I mean, (laughs) I like how you're like, I have to take a class right now. I'll text you later. And I'm like, word, I totally understand that. Okay. We have a lot to cover today. Um, Hi, Romy. Hi, baby girl. She's here with us. She says, hi, dog dog abandoned us. Okay. We have a lot to cover today. Folks, we know that a lot of y'all couldn't go to ASHA. um, And this is the this is the second time we've done an ASHA rehash. Mm-hmm. This is only my second ASHA. The first That's ASHA, right. I was with my family because they were all in Orlando at the same time. So I, this is my first ASHA of getting the full experience. And the thing I have learned is that women who are like away from their children and husbands can drink more than I can. So Kristen West, I'm calling you out here, friend. <laughs> No, that would also be me and Renee and um, all the other lovely ladies. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now that everybody's blushing, Asha is more about after hour cocktails. I do promise that. Okay. So on that note, let's talk about ethical requirements (laughs) that must be considered for treatment of pediatric feeding disorders. This is much better um, within the LEA. Now, 
this was one of my favorite classes also because um, one, the future Dr. Kristen West, because she's working on her doctorate, was presenting it and we love her. And she is heavily involved with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. Um, if you have not heard of the Dysphagia Outreach Project, the Dysphagia Outreach Project was founded by Hillary Cooper and they work to put product in the hands of patients in need for free. Mm-hmm. So let me rephrase that. If you have a child that has a feeding tube, if you have a child that needs a blender, if you have a child that's in need of trialing savories crafters, all the way from NICU to end of life care for adults, y'all, they give it to them for free. When um, it was started for adults and then yes. they found out that like the primary requests that they were getting were for pediatrics. So yes, yes. So, um, and Kristen, I think she's like the new VP of, um, PFD. I'm not quite sure on the specific, um, title there, but they have an executive board. Also, every single person involved with dysphagia outreach project is a volunteer. Nobody collects a salary. Any donations that go to DOP go directly to the organization to put product in the hands of those that are in need. So I just have to put that out there. But so one, I was fangirling because of that. And she's a do-gooder. And two, Dr. Lissa Power DeFleur, who is my professor back in Virginia and did a volunteer spell as the Ashen VP of Ethics, was in the audience at the class. And afterwards, I like totally got pictures of the two of them chit-chatting. And it just, oh my God, that made my heart so happy because she was like, yes, this is what we've needed. So that was, it was just really cool to see a mentor and a woman that I idolize, like combining forces. That was really powerful. Yes. And you and I were like, yes, from the audience. Okay. So why don't you start us out? Well, I don't want to butcher it. And you're giving a lecture on feeding in the schools coming up soon. So I feel like you should start because now I'm, especially with Kristen watching, I don't want to mess it up. Okay. So she started with ethics number one. Do we realize that it's actually required? And she went through a significant amount of legal case studies where she analyzed lawsuits where caregivers had sued various department of educations where it was either the specific school district and, or I think she even cited a couple cases that were states um, like the Mm -hmm. state department of education, where in a couple of instances, the child had um, succumbed to a choking event or aspiration pneumonia because the child's pediatric feeding disorder was not adequately treated. In the other cases, it was, you know, they were doing the absolute bare minimum. But the point being, we are responsible for adequately providing um, metabolic caloric intake when the child is at school. And it goes beyond just uh, basically filling their feeding tube. So not only should we assess, but we also need to actually do competent intervention. So that was that was the biggest takeaway, which that's scary. I mean, a lot of SLPs that work in the public school, their wheelhouse predominantly is not pediatric feeding disorder. Just like my wheelhouse is not dyslexia, speech sound disorder, or stuttering. Don't look to me for those things at all. But yes. Okay. So what were your thoughts on that? I think I like, I think about a lot of kids I have on my caseload who... I have a few that have been told by the school district that like they have to leave early because they won't eat at school. I have a few who don't have someone right there with them at school to help them while they're eating. And so they come, so maybe they have like a pediatric school and then they come home and it's like, they've completely crushed or they like parents just have to like for lack of a better term, like get food inside of them because they are have like their sugar has bought them out and school, you know, they could manage up until they left school. And so I think people are starting to see that like, okay, we have a lot more children in the schools that have medical differences, um, feeding tubes or dysphagia or some sort pediatric feeding disorders that people have started to pick up on that diagnosis. But 
it's not just making sure that they get enough food to survive. It's making sure that they get enough food to learn. And I, in taking the TBRI course, trauma-based relationship intervention, they talk all the time about ecological impacts and how you can, the importance of hydration and nutrition are Mm -hmm. for a child to learn, for a child to be successful and to be trauma-informed. Like you need to make sure that someone is being fed and are hydrated because otherwise we're working from our lower brain. We're not being trauma informed. We're not setting them up for success. And so that's so, so, so important. And it's sad because I feel like a lot of these kids end up staying at home mm-hmm. because they, the parents are struggling with that. Like they're having behaviors at school and I like use air quotes behaviors. Also, side note, like I've had a lot of conversations about like the word behavior and how like it has this really negative connotation, but how behavior is just information. So like it may not always be communication, but it is information. So they're giving, they're having a behavior because they're telling us something. They're not getting enough nutrition. They're not hydrated, whatever that is. But it's not enough to just say that, you know, okay, they had a pediatrician, we're good. Like this is something that we need to help them succeed. And that was a big takeaway. And that was something that like I thought about with so many of my kids. I'm like, well, this isn't like, you know, we need to look deeper than that. Yes. I like that she went through and did the review of who's appropriate for a PFD team and how some of the cases, because we finally have the SLPA certification right? Like that rolled out last year. ASHA finally has approved the SLPA specific certification. But within that, there are very strict parameters on what an SLPA can and cannot do. Pediatric feeding disorder, oropharyngeal dysphagia, anything that has to do with a bolus is outside of their scope of practice. And if you are a supervising SLP and you have an SLPA um, who's working under you, and they are engaging in anything that has to do with the bolus. And I know that I have heard rumblings of this happening not too far from my own personal zip code uh, on the grounds that it's sensory play, but then they're having the child consume the food. If also, they, wait, but yes, no. Also, I saw the also. Yes, but that is, that's not acceptable. That is not appropriate. And that is outside of the scope of practice. All right, go tag. No, but. I'm a little tired of like the sense, like this is just sensory. God bless America. And I like, I can go on a rant about how like no one, like OTs don't own sensory. Like we should be learning about sensory. It's mainly because like, I mean, I think it needs to be implemented more in our education, but your sensory system is how you experience the world. So you can't just say it's sensory because that's all encompassing. And that's Mm -hmm. a little... I don't want to use a mean word, but like, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, has it ever, never mind. (laughs) But I think it's like, even with feeding, like we always, oh, well, this is sensory versus this is medical or this Uh is like, it's all encompassing. I think it's hard to establish the line. I understand. But like, to your point, I think we need to be more careful in saying it's just sensory. Like you don't really know. Yeah. That's sorry. (laughs) No, that's perfectly spot on. Okay. So when she was going through the team, <laughs> sorry, guys, the boys brought home pneumonia, flu type A. So yeah, I had, I had pneumonia. This is not COVID pneumonia. It was flu pneumonia. And several also, weeks later- Also, it's fine if it's COVID. Like, it's not anyone's fault for getting COVID, but you've I, had pneumonia, which is like absurd. This is, my <laughs> children have infected me. Bear was like, I give you the COVID because they did that a year ago. And he's like, now I give you the flu, but I was so focused on getting them their COVID vaccine. I forgot about their flu vaccine because mom brain. So yes. And you need like, to go to the tooth fairy because your crown fell out. Oh, folks, today we were slightly worried that I was going to have hemiparesis of my face because on Monday night, I may or may not have eaten my elderberry gummy and it vacuum suctioned my crown molar right off of my tooth. And I ended up in the dentist today getting it concreted back on. And I was so worried that they were going to have to numb me. I was like, I have to give a live lecture tonight at 630. You cannot numb me. And they were like, this might hurt a little. It's like, okay. So took one for the team and we all survived. I digress. Okay. But to the PFD team in the public schools, there are examples on Ash's website. We uh, give credit where it's due. 
Emily Hummer was the original sounding board for PFD and wrote the original documents for who needs to be on the team. What I love is that Kristen has carried it forward and talks about the treatment, not just having them set, this is the plateau and this is where we're at, but Christian's challenging that narrative to say, not only do we have to hit the plateau, but we have to carry it forward. And so when she was going through her case studies, she was talking about the ethics of who's on the team and how multiple people have to be trained in the event that we're in a pandemic. What if multiple players on that LEA team are out. Who know that child or trained mm-hmm. to be that child. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It cannot just be their parapro. So this is this is where to make the muddy waters clear. The parapro can be trained to feed the child on the prescribed plan of care diet. They are not advancing the solids or doing therapeutic clinical trials. That would fall in the parameters of the speech-language pathologist that's licensed fully seed as well as the OTR that's registered and not the CODA, okay, Certified Occupational Therapy Assistant, all right? The classroom teacher is not challenging the food and progressing the diet. They also, in conjunction with the school nurse, can feed the child the diet as prescribed. Mm -hmm. But multiple people have to be trained and cross-trained. If that means that the school principal, and I'm like, I can see the school-based clinicians being like, yeah, right. But (laughs) at least a couple that I worked for once upon a lifetime when I was at SLT. But if they are the buck stops here and they are, you know, worst case scenario, they're the person that can fulfill that child's minimal need, then that's what's required. Because at the end of the day, do no harm. And we have to make sure the child is safe. So um, the ethics of making sure that multiple team members were covered as well as there was one other part. Oh, considering the environment. That was one of Mm -hmm. her biggies was we need to consider the environment. Yes. I just think about, no, I just think about, I worked at a school. It was a a nonprofit. It was a school in Pittsburgh that Mm -hmm. was, all autistic children in one hallway and then children with multiple disabilities in another hallway. And I remember when I walked into the lunchroom the first day after my hair got pulled and the woman was like, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I was like, yeah, it was like the loudest, most overwhelming environment that I've ever been in. Kids were like throwing themselves on the floor and you were like, I feel you. Like I would throw myself on the floor too. Like it was the loudest, most overwhelming environment ever. And like, I got used to it, but like, I remember being like, whoa, I can't handle this. And then like, we think about positioning and we think about all the input sensory wise that children are getting and how, I mean, I wouldn't, it's hard enough as like a EI feeding therapist to get a kid to sit at the table with their family. Yes. Like that's overwhelming enough. Yes. Especially when that's atypical for them. Mm -hmm. So baggage disclaimer. We all come with our wounds. We all come with like our baggage, right? Like I remember when my nuclear our differences, fam- Michelle, that's what we call differences. It. No, my our individual, is, no, our individual, differences. individual differences. Trauma yes. is an individual difference. That makes it sound a lot better than the bags that I carry. Yes. So my self-love, individual, I hear it. you, Aaron. I hear you. Say individual it. differences. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> She guys, she's teaching me better self-care and self-love. So I'm working on this. Self-respect. We got this. So individual differences. So when I was growing up and I was little, when my nuclear family was still married, that's a fun story in and of itself. But um, catch me up next, Asha folks. But we would have family dinners together. And I loved that. And it was just my one sister and my dad and my mom and my grandma that raised me because, you know, my parents were career and not always present. But we would have family dinners together. I lived for those moments. We would have family breakfasts together, right? But then my parents divorced. My mom wasn't always present. And my grandmother raised us, right? And those family meal times with my grandma, it was just her and I having breakfast together. Also, I kind of wonder what PFD I had when for four years in high school, all I ate was a grilled cheese sandwich dipped in ketchup with sweet tea for breakfast for four years straight, but like meh, life. But that was 
something that I looked forward to. It was steady and it was stable. Think about our kids with PFD. They have that one steady and they have that one stable in their natural environment. And then all of a sudden, at the tender age of three, for most of these kids, they're thrust from steady, stable home. We hope it's steady, stable home, not always. And then they go with their individual differences to a classroom environment where they probably have a snack in, where they're overwhelmed by the cacophony of smells in the classroom, not to mention, I mean, and think about that, the smells of hand sanitizer, the smells of soap, the smells of the perfume of the women that are washing their hands and doing hand over hand. And then they go down Mm -hmm. the hall and you've got like, I mean, it's a crescendo effect and it just builds and it builds and it builds. And it makes me think, what is it? The William Tell overture. And then you hear the symbols go bam, right? That's one of my favorite. When I die, I want to be cremated and shot out of a cannon to the William Tell overture with glitter. Remember this, Aaron. Okay. But Bear brought it up, but that's another story. But all of this happens for these kids. And then we expect them to sit complacently on those little round tables, those little round circle seats where their feet dangle this far off. And how many of them have core issues and they can't like, yeah, they can't even sit upright. They have no idea where their body is in space. And then they're the ones that you're picking up off the floor. Wait, was it you that was telling the spaghetti story? Or was that Kristen that was telling the spaghetti story? It was Kristen. It was Kristen. Kristen, I'm telling your spaghetti story. So she got called in for a little one that had PFD in the public schools. And every spaghetti day, just the sight or smell of spaghetti would cause this one little guy to throw up. So one day, a child had spaghetti sitting next to him and the child that had the PFD threw up on one child who was so grossed out that child threw up on another child who then threw up on another child. And by, I don't know, a three minute, everybody at the table was covered in somebody else's vomit and everybody had to go home. So that is a PFD worst case scenario. Well, but also I think what becomes difficult and what she was talking about is how you can have these conversations with the schools about like in regards to lawsuits, what it can cost them if something goes wrong. Right. And so I think that's a conversation that is starting to be had and that schools are starting to understand, you know, advocate for, okay, this is a safety issue. This is how much it can cost you if you don't have these things in place. Yes. The thing that is more difficult is advocating for that quality to help them learn because you can't put numbers on that. And a lot of these kids already have other individual differences regarding their learning or their language or yes. Sorry, y'all. Kristen typed in and the social impact of the spaghetti scenario. Yes. Imagine that you're the one that started the chain vomit. Mm-hmm. Well, she talks a lot about how that's when kids socialize is at lunch. I mean, the amount of stories that Bear and Goose tell us about their friends at lunch and how one friend wasn't listening and he was whipping his jacket around and how Bear, all the ladies ate the the vegetables because Bear ate them. So like, you know, we think about all these interactions that these children have. And I know that this is, and I know like, just like we think about all our colleagues that work in the schools and how difficult it is for them to be able to give their students the quality therapy that they want to based on these time constraints. And this is like a bigger conversation about our educational system that like we obviously can't get into. Yes. But I have one patient who, when he comes, he is currently an ABA, which we won't talk about that right now, but I'm going to do my master. But he has a lot of difficulty eating at ABA. And every time he comes to see his OT and I, he searches he knows where these gummies are hidden in the office and he finds them and he like shoves them in his mouth because he can actually feel his hunger because he's not stressed which is like not something that i mean that's a whole other thing but like yes this is something we're starting to talk about and this is something that i think we need to think about is this something that i think is going to be like the most easy sell no no but like the amount that we understand about like the brain as you say, like the gut connection to the brain and how important those nutrients are for like cognition, for arousal, Mm -hmm. for like kids cannot learn 
Yeah. Kids cannot learn if they're not regulated and they cannot be regulated if they don't have the right nutrition and they don't have the right Mm -hmm. hydration. And that's just simple as anything. So it's just something I think that we all need to think about. I'm happy that like more people are talking about just in general, bringing feeding to an IEP and bringing it to the schools Mm -hmm. because it's desperately needed. And I will no longer hear that my patient can't go to school because they don't know how to feed them. Um, Wait, can I interject really quick? Of course. Y'all, this is profound. And I have to give a shout out to Angie Neal, who is the South Carolina Department of Education SLP liaison. She's also known, um, well known in the dyslexia circle and has a R program that she teaches. I just recorded her. Her podcast comes out next week, I think. And she's dynamic. Um, Angie, this summer overhauled the South Carolina Department of Education. And next Tuesday, if memory serves correct, the finalized proposal that will add PFD to the public school, she's presenting to the lead SLPs in the entire state, and it goes live effective April 1st. Every single patient that Aaron and I treat in the state of South Carolina, when they turn three, their PFD does not magically disappear, to quote the Kristen it follows them to schools. And in South Carolina, effective April 1st, that PFD will be responsible within the scope of practice, always within the scope of practice, but even under the umbrella of the Department of Education to be treated within the public schools. That is earth shattering news because it's not like South Carolina is known for doing cutting edge things. Um, (laughs) You know what, Michelle? You know what, though? We're getting as um, water cheers. I've been in (laughs) conversation. No, but you know what? takes just one or two joyful squeaky wheels that want to see good in the world so if you're listening once if you're listening don't be afraid to like communicate with your state organization and communicate with people that are involved in government because there's a lot of people in business that go into government because of like taxes and stuff which Mm -hmm. like not that i'm saying that that's not important but like i think people in business see how policy impacts what they can do and i think people in our fields don't see it as much because they Mm -hmm. don't understand. And it's just, we don't learn about that. But when Mm -hmm. you realize how much like something that's written on one manual can completely impact what you can bill for or how you can treat Mm -hmm. your patient, you're Mm -hmm. like, wow, okay, I need to make some Mm -hmm. moves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Y'all, once this is out for the common good, we'll be sure to share. We can put it in the, what is the word? The tree that comes down in Instagram. The link tree. The link tree. Bless yes. Mm-hmm. We'll put it in the link tree. We'll put the link to it in the link tree. Because Aaron and I firmly believe if you do something, information should be shared and not hoarded. So we will share with the plenty. And trust me, Aaron was right there and I sent her numerous rapid fire emails and was like, please edit this. Yes. yes. And also and- Kristen said she will answer any questions for you. If you need like a... If you're sitting here being like, mm-hmm, I have questions, like I need someone like she will provide. We just want more people yes, to be working on this and like advocating. And so Kristen, um, can you please add in the chat box an email address that I can say aloud for all of the folks that are listening to it? Beautiful. <laughs> already already on it. <laughs> Kristen West. Oh, hold on. I just had a notification pop up. Kristen M. Um, west at gmail.com so if you're listening and need guidance please feel free to reach out to her also i have it on good authority that she's coming back on to first bite to do a one-on-one talk and yeah, so we like we're trying that like this is like a, a recap of asha like mm-hmm. don't like she'll do more really dive in. <laughs> yes she's doing more okay we have two more topics to hit so this one any final thoughts are we good we're, we're good we're good okay all right so the next one oh i almost died did you see me drop my phone? See, this nope, is I was folks, this is something. what they edit out that y'all can't really hear. That's why the live ones make me nervous. Okay, so we need to cover three differences across settings from NICU to EI to LEA. Oh my God, this was Dr. Rocky Garcia. You guys, we love the Rocky. Rocky teaches, where does she teach at? I don't remember the name of the university. I don't remember the name of the university in Florida. If you remember, Kristen, you can <laughs> Yes, Rocky. We love it's Nova Dr. Southeastern. Nova Southeastern. It's Dr. Raquel Garcia. She goes by Rocky. She was the one of the lead NICU speech pathologists 
if not the lead NICU speech pathologist at her hospital for several years. She is incredibly knowledgeable and passionate. And we, y'all, when she shares, when she speaks, it's so humble, but Mm -hmm. she has such a presence that it's comforting and you feel safe to ask those NICU questions. She also like, I'm just making sure that this dog is okay. She also like gives you some of the most genuine, kindest compliments in such a subtle way where you're like, wait a second, I just processed what you said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, she's also a cleft and craniofacial clinic team member. And um, Nikki is a Joe DiMaggio children's. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. I love how Kristen's coming in clutch for Aaron and I at the end of a long day. Thank she's you, like, she's like our cue cards. Yes, yes. <laughs> but Rocky and then Chris- the EI she- therapist was Nina. What's her last Ferguson. name? Ferguson, Dr. Nina yes. Ferguson, who was so wonderful. Yes, I, like so. I have worked in NICU and I've worked in EI. So, like those were two that I very much understood and very much like have had m- many conversations with people about differences and. What's so crazy is the vast differences from like Mm -hmm. being in the NICU to being an EI. And I remember my supervisor, Laurie, who works at the Children's Hospital here, who's fantastic. She, she'll say to me, she'll be like, I'm not treating that kid in the home. She'll be like, I'm in here in the hospital and I'm going to see them in the home. She's like, you, you're out in the wild there. Like have a good time. But like how it's like this family in the NICU, like, I mean, it's stressful. Like you have this patient that has like every monitor they could possibly have. You're like introducing PO for the first time. You're trying to make sure that their heart can tolerate it. You're, you know, making sure that you're communicating with the nurses and advocating for the baby and advocating for the family. And then they like leave the NICU and we're like so excited and they're discharged. Some of the time the speech therapist agrees on the discharge. A lot of the time, not. the therapist doesn't agree <laughs> on the discharge. And then they're like home. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, like you're, there's no monitors. There's no like nurse there. So you're just, we're here and we're going and we're trying to like develop their feeding skills yeah. and develop their language skills. But like, it's crazy to me how you get every medical record, every note you could possibly see in the NICU. And then they're in the home and like nothing. Nothing. And you have to bet. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've talked with our intake coordinator and we've fixed our referral form to the point where I say, if they want to refer us a kid, like I need their at least at bare minimum, their most recent note. So I at least have all of their diagnostic codes. I at least have like what's been happening right now. If they have a spot, like I should be getting all these other reports Mm -hmm. and the difficulty it is to get a swallow study report is absurd. But, but they were like, one thing I really appreciated was how each in this lecture that we saw Asha, how like each member of the team in each setting recognized the strengths and weaknesses and like the difficulties they have versus the benefits of being in each setting. Because like, I sometimes feel that like, we don't all understand each other. Yes. And we don't all try to understand each other. Yes. And I don't think that that's because we don't want to, but I think it's a like, just we're speaking different languages. So so we can all speak the same language. We're also have to take the effort to understand each other and understand where this, the relationship with the therapist before you, it's going to be so much better. Like I am grateful and lucky that the therapist that works in the NICU and in the hospital was my mentor. And so I have very clear communication with her and she has very clear communication with me. And we work to like, I let them know when I have a kid coming in for a small study. I ask how that child did in the NICU. I ask, like, if they have to go to the hospital, you better believe that I'm reaching out to a speech therapist. They're being like, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. But like, you have to make the effort. And at first it's really hard because you're having to like build this relationship but like once a therapist or a physician or someone sees that you're making an effort to have a conversation on the benefit of helping this child it won't take too long for them to be like here's my cell phone number like call me if you need something like at first it's a little more effort but they will appreciate that 
not everyone. Like you're not going to have everyone that loves that. You're going to have some people that go into their job and say, I'm going in. I don't want to do the extra. And that's fine. That's how people are. That's how it is. It doesn't make them a bad person. It just is with it. But Um, wait, reflection, where are they in their walk? Where are they with their daily to do? Okay, wait. So Rocky said, and I love her hand gestures because she was at the podium and she did her hand gestures. She said, NICU therapist, people get into the NICU because they think it's all like that, right? Yeah. But she was very honest about the quantity of babies that come through the NICU. And that's one point of system failure. When you are in private practice and you're in early intervention, you typically have a pretty steady caseload, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have roughly 20 kids I'm going to see every week and they're probably going to be the same. They're probably going to be the same 20 kids for, I don't know, at least three to six months. And I have some kids that I've seen for three to four years because of everything that's gone on, right? Now, here's the catch. In the NICU, you have a very high ratio of patients and you're going to see a more diverse disorder, disease, comorbidity. And when that patient leaves, you don't know which speech pathologist they're going to get assigned to, which is very complicated. So that means that we have time, theoretically, on the early interventionist world Mm -hmm. to actually reach back out to the NICU. So what Rocky and Nina were saying. Foreshadow them. I mean, COVID's. Yes. COVID's like a whole thing. But like the thing that sucks with COVID is like, is there, there's extreme value for someone seeing your face. Yes. Yes. But that was one of the biggies was that have the, as an early interventionist, reach backwards to the NICU therapist and realize And this was a huge learning curve for me. When I entered the world of EI, I honest to God thought that the NICU, when the baby came to me from the NICU, they came with all of the potential comorbidities and etiologies already diagnosed. And (laughs) don't like, uh, like, honestly, I went through like, no, I mean, like, I will say when I was in the NICU, like you would see something and you would be like, "Mm, I think there may be something genetic going on or, Ooh, I really think ENT should look at this. Yes. And if that child was stable, and this is not every NICU, but if that child was stable, because every Absolutely. other service aside from the neonatologist is consult, yes. every other physician is consult. So like, you don't have a guarantee that they're going to look at. I mean, I remember yes. I had a patient who I forget what their genetic diagnosis was, but like this child, like it was the craziest falsity today I've ever seen in my life where like, it was almost as if like their pharynx, ma'am. Sorry, Roby's trying to assist. She's lost her mind. It was almost as if like the bullet was shooting up one way and shooting down another. Like there was this, I don't even know, like a constriction in their pharynx, but it was just like, it was absurd because it would get to the point where like there was such a constriction that like she couldn't breathe because like Mm -hmm. she couldn't get that like peristaltic wave to like go through the pharynx into the esophagus i'm like it's been a while so like i'm not i'm picturing it in my head but they were like oh that's just her diagnosis and like she got a feeding tube and yeah and they discharged her and they got you know so i assume that too and then when i got there i was like oh oh yes but that's just it so my biggest takeaway was one the reminder that when you leave the NICU, you do not have all diagnoses, which is why the home health SLP. If they're medically stable, like Chris, yes. like rock. Yeah. Yeah. Medically stable, not feeding optimally. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it is up to the speech pathologist working in early intervention to typically do the legwork. It typically falls on you to be the detective. What is that? Barbara Ellis Coven has a really good. Barbara um, Ellis. Yes, we could have flipped her person. Coven Ellis, she's yes, very sweet. Yes, yeah. she's got a book on this, and it's all about being the detective. And I love that. It's cute. Mm-hmm. It's got like a little girl in a hat, and like, but yeah, that's on. Do, yes, mm-hmm. I always would say when I worked in the NICU, like my job was to teach parents how. I really tried to because it's it's hard. Like it's hard to be. It was really like I learned so much. You learn about every diagnosis. Like you work with these incredibly 
complex children. But I would always say to my families, I was like, my job is teaching you how to communicate with your child. Because this is the first, the NICU is the first experience a parent has with communicating with their baby. And don't get me started on like affect and interoception and like the importance of all of that, which like is something I'm like, but how like feeding is communication. Like one of the first emotions that a baby feels is hunger. And so like, this is what you, like the NICU therapist and like Casey Lewis talks a lot about, has a lot of really good resources too about it, but it's like, that's your job as a NICU therapist is really, really to facilitate that relationship and that bonding with feeding and give those parents the confidence that no matter what happens, whether they're seeing something that's going on, that like their gut isn't telling them, or we're just continuing to progress that like you're setting them up for success. It's hard sometimes because parents are always there, but yeah, I think that's, it's just different. And that's why like, it's, it was great to have everyone give their perspective with three women who really respect each other and to look at how like, okay, we have these kids in the eye and then they go into the schools because I think where you were in South Carolina, I think we see kids. It's not like other three and we move on because of the way our insurance works. But I think the way that like a lot of other systems work, like they're three and then they go to school. And yes. so it's like you, then you really have to, be, and three, I'm like, some of my kid, like three years old. So I get some kids at two, like I, like it just blows my mind. But then they like have to get these services at school and we have to have those conversations, but their resources are so different and it's like a educational model. Okay. But like, can, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but there was one common theme across all the speakers and that was, it circled back to caregiver coaching and Nina Ferguson, Dr. Ferguson, I totally fangirled over her. She was like wicked cool. I went to get her on the podcast, but they were all talking about how in every setting we're supposed to equip the caregiver. And then they went through like talking about the challenges of that. Because in the NICU, what if the baby is a twin and the twin goes home? Or what if there's other children at the home? Mm-hmm. Or in, I mean, good Lord Almighty, we all know the trials and tribulations of early intervention. If you're at a private practice, what if the private practice has a policy where no caregivers are allowed in the clinic? Or what if you go into the home yeah. and the parents meet you at the door and think you're babysitting and then go to a different room to like mm-hmm. turn on their shows for, you know, the next 30 minutes to an hour. And I mean, in the public schools, simply trying to reach them. But I had to troubleshoot because we're not just going to voice the concerns. We're also going to give the solutions. And one of the solutions that has worked exceedingly well for me and is that when I do my documentation and I'm doing my write-up, during that time, like the last couple of minutes of the session, I'm rehashing with the caregiver, like what it is that we talked about while I'm doing the write-up. But I'll also take that time to say, hey, I'm still missing this. Or, hey, we're, we keep seeing these signs and symptoms of eczema. Or we keep seeing these signs and symptoms. Do you want me to reach out to your physician right now and request the referral? Because I'm still engaging in patient care. I'm doing that with the caregiver. Also, by making that point of contact, I'm modeling to the caregiver how to contact the referral department mm-hmm. because the caregivers may not know this is how you contact the referral department. You, I mean, it's when I call Palmetto Pediatrics, it's option two, I'm sorry, option four, then option two. And I know the, yeah, I know the yeah. truth, but where are families taught how to make that action mm-hmm. happen? Well, yeah. to give them, like, I love nothing more than when, like, I have a caregiver that goes to a doctor's appointment and is able to fully communicate to the physician what yes. they've been seeing. And, and yes. then there's a change in that plan. Or mm-hmm. when I have a caregiver that their child goes to school and they're like, no, this is something that my child needs. I'm going to advocate for it. And yes. because as much as it shouldn't be this way, especially right now with feeding in the schools, because that's what we've Mm -hmm. been talking about. Sometimes parents need to fight a little bit for it. And that, but that is how changes get made. It is hard to say, like, we really need more parents to be kind of having those tough conversations, telling schools, no, I'm not going to accept that this is what you're giving me. Like my child needs more than this. 
But I think sometimes that's how even more changes get made. I mean, the squeaky wheel speech therapist, like, yeah, I think that can have an impact as well too. But the more parents that advocate for it. And so by giving your parents the confidence to say, no, if you feel that this is what your child needs, you're probably right. And to continue to help them feel heard, because there's a lot of times where our patients who have a pediatric feeding disorder, I'd say 90% of the parents on my caseload, the caregivers on my caseload haven't been heard at some point in time. Yeah. So helping them at least feel confident that like, you know what, if something feels wrong, I'm at least going to ask another question about it. I'm at least going to have them give me an answer because they're probably right. Yes. Okay. It just dawned on me that we're remiss that we missed one of the biggest things of why we chose call it PFD for the title of tonight's episode. What do we miss? Y'all, this was the very first ASHA convention that had its very own PFD track. Um, Dr. Memory Gosa, who's chair of University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Why would you say that? Because that's my stepdad's team. Don't do it. I have to get the one thing the man did teach me was to say that. He's also a rocket scientist and makes really good eye contact after you give him an um, apple martini, which is just a whole nother delightful conversation. <laughs> but like, you know, bless. Anyways, also Aaron, wait, we watched football this weekend as a family and um, Goose was cheering. He goes, touchdown. And my husband was like, that was an interception. <laughs> I was like, oh, we need more time with Aaron. Hate, I was hate watching football this weekend because the Bills should have won. But time, we're going to move on. Yeah. Don't worry okay. about it. We digress. But Dr. Memoricosa chaired the very first inaugural pediatric feeding disorders planning committee. And so y'all, the reason we had these topics and the final topic of the day, it was the two hour short course and it was our master's level clinician course. And it was the invited speakers is because of the volunteer work by the PFD committee led by Dr. Memoricosa. And y'all, she's doing it again this coming fall. So um, shout out to her with heartfelt gratitude for everyone that volunteered and put the time in. Also, I'm really excited to see what comes this time around because I know the plans are good. But the invited talk this year was Feeding Matters because we are where we are in the world with Mm -hmm. respect to having the new ICD-10 codes. Erin, I always screw these up. Can you pull up the ICD-10 codes, the acute versus the chronic yeah, I just so, diagnosed a kid today, so I can't remember him, but... R63 point... A kid who's been congested for 10 months of his life. It's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Casual. But we have um, to yes. go for it. You got him? Hang on. I'll, I'm got him. You'd think as many times as I type this into a computer, I can rattle um, that off. But um, let's see. All right. Well, while you're pulling it up, but yes, yeah, so we had Feeding Matters was there, and they talked about the ethics of utilizing the CPT codes. So one of the biggies was how are you coding your feeding session? And this is especially a hot button topic here. And they laid it out right there in the overhead projector glory that when you are doing a treatment session for a child with a pediatric feeding disorder, oral pharyngeal dysphagia can fall under PFD or oral pharyngeal dysphagia can be its own standalone diagnosis like R1312 or R1311 for oral dysphagia. That has to be coded 92526. That is the appropriate CPT code. It's just the treatment of swallowing and swallowing dysfunction, right? You cannot code your PFD session 92507 treatment of language unless you are explicitly working on language, but you also have to code 92526 in conjunction with. So case in point, I have this one little guy We're working on language. We're working on adjectives as well as treating his PFD chronic. It's R63.3, isn't it? PFD chronic. R63.31, I think is acute. And R63.32 is chronic. But when we're treating the session, also he loves, he's really into whales. So he brings a piece of clay and we shape it into a beluga whale, a blue whale, a humpback whale. I've learned a lot about whales in the last six weeks of my life. <laughs> Way more than I ever thought I would learn. Yeah. But it's three, one and three, two. Three, one and three, two. Beautiful. Yeah. R63, three, two is chronic. Yes. Thank you, Chris. But 
I am coding the adjectives, how we're describing the food. When I'm working on teaching him that component of language, I can code 92507, but my soap note must support that we are specifically targeting that goal. Well, and then the PFD, yeah. I can code 92526. The but never should the two like, mix. And I think the difficulties that we have versus like OTs who also treat feeding is OTs code therapeutic activities. Yes. So they can... And that's where I struggle sometimes. And I love OTs, but that's where I struggle sometimes. Is they're like, we're just going to work on feeding now. And they'll just add it in. Like they don't need a new script. They don't need, you know, it's just an activity of daily living that they've noticed that something is going on and they're going to add it in because they have one, they just, not just, they build therapeutic activities and it can be all encompassing. Whereas like for us, our ICD-10 codes have to align with our CPT codes. Yes. And so the issue does become if you have a child that has a pediatric feeding disorder, but they don't have a language disorder, you're billing 92526 because you're treating yes. feeding, which is a struggle because I think a lot of our kids like language helps with their feeding, but like we're not treating a language disorder. So yes. you yes. have to be careful with that. The other thing that was, because we, I know we're short on time already, but the other ethical implication when they were talking about utilizations of the codes was making sure that we're still respectful of the R13 code as a standalone code, if appropriate. So it is possible to have just an oral pharyngeal dysphagia and not have the full diagnosis of PFD. And if that's the case, then we need to make sure that our code, whether it be R1311, which is just oral stage dysphagia, R1312, oropharyngeal, and R1313, which is pharyngeal esophageal, that has to be clearly laid out in our documents. Well, they talked about, and Pamela Dodson like honed on this a lot, is that they were very particular about using age appropriate. And that was a like a very, they discussed that a lot of whether, because we talk a lot about like developmentally appropriate, age appropriate. They were very particular about the use of age appropriate. And she made sure to say, if you have a child who is eating an age appropriate diet, mm-hmm. but you're having to use accommodations like a specific cup, you're having to present the food in a specific way, that is a pediatric feeding disorder. Mm-hmm. Because even though they're eating an age-appropriate diet, you're having to use modifications to help them get there. Yes. And that's, I think, something that we are... That is a shift for a speech mm-hmm. therapist to think about. Mm-hmm. Because we see a kid and it's like, oh, well, maybe they need to use this. Like, it's fine. Like, maybe they don't need feeding therapy. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they don't have a pediatric feeding disorder. Mm-hmm. Because this parent is still having to make adjustments in their life and therefore that can impact psychosocial. And so that's something that is important to think about. And I like, and Chris and I have talked about this, like breaking down because I, I'm going to be honest, I hate the way that we've created like in our documentation system, the way our feeding email is set up, like we're working to change it. But like we've talked about changing it to those four domains. Yes. And like breaking it down in those four domains. What I really like about that as well is I think it justifies need for referrals as well. And it like, mm-hmm. it breaks down the understanding of like where this child is and like why we're diagnosed with pediatric eating disorder. It just helps people understand like where we're coming from. It helps people understand the diagnosis and it helps people understand how integrated complex a PFD is because nutrition issue and social issue. But that was very interesting to think about, especially with that, like think about our kids that like parents are really, really working hard to help their kid be get, they're getting all the nutrition, they're eating at the table, they're doing what they need to do. But this parent is like, I'm not going to swear because we're alive, but like working their butt off to like have it happen. Like that's still something we need to recognize because like, there are a lot of parents and caregivers that are like doing everything they can and it looks fine, but like, it's still a disorder. Like it's still an issue that we need to like provide them support with. Yes. Okay. My last takeaway was that we need to be making sure that when we are requesting referrals, that we're documenting the why we want a referral in the eval and planning the care. Like that was when they had the GI specialist come up and he was talking and they were like, but if you want the referral to go here, you have to document. So it's not enough to say, 
And I don't know if that was like in the talk or if that was like a sidebar after the talk, because of course we stuck around and like geeked out, but like, and this is what you do at ASHA. Like you get to meet y'all when you go to ASHA and there's all these great minds and their passion. That's an unspoken, joyful takeaway. I mean, it's just, it's profound. I got to see Dr. Joan Arvidsson on the way to the bathroom outside of the passing mirror valve. And that was like my coolest moment at ASHA was like, I had to pee for the hundredth time because I've had children. And like, when you sneeze, you must pee. So like I'm beat lying to the bathroom and there's Joan Arvidsson. And I finally worked up the courage to like, go say hi. And like, this is one of the joyful things that you do at ASHA. Also Mm -hmm. on that note, all of the folks that came up, because there was so many folks that Aaron and I ran into on our way to and from the bathroom, or at least me on the way to and from, or like rushing up and down escalators to get to the next class that stopped and said, hi, that stopped and said, thank you for the podcast. Please know we appreciate you. I'm sorry. I am such an awkward turtle to meet. And it's so uncomfortable. Like, like really though, like, I get really nervous. I'm going to say the wrong thing or accidentally drop a four letter word that we can't do now because we're live, but that's me in real life. So thank you so much for your kind words and sharing the joy and sharing the journey with us, but we appreciate you. So I'll take a minute to tease out the, are there any other final thoughts on Asha before I tell them what we've got lined up for the next couple of weeks? What do we have lined up? Okay. So I'm going to pull out the handy dandy notebook. So oh my gosh, we next- have like, so Michelle, I mean, man, she's been interviewing everyone. So <laughs> I literally walked away from a faculty job to reclaim my life because I wanted better work-life balance and I got joy back and mental health and it's been amazing. So on that note, we have Angie Neal coming out for dyslexia. We've got Megan Branham coming up for caregiver supports. We have Aaron and I going on this one on repeat. Let me switch over to the March lineup. We have the one and only Amy Graham coming out the first week of March. She, Amy Graham is like huge in the world of phonology, phonetics, we have Renee Garrett from the Speech Hearing Association of Virginia coming on to do an ethics one. And that was great, hard talk, but necessary. We got Brooke Bielman coming on. I love Brooke to talk about leadership. We also leadership. have a lot more like neurodiversity affirming therapists yes. coming on, which is like something I'm super passionate about that like yes. Michelle and I will be talking more about because like I'm yes. learning, we're having conversations about that. It's something that I think we need to be more aware of that we yep. need to have more Rennie agrees. We need to have more conversations about. And so we're, we've Wait. been working. I know it's been like a long break, but we've been working. Yes. The Casey Lewis is coming. Dr. Rocky Garcia is coming. Kristen's coming. Kristen who? Kristen. Kristen, <laughs> <laughs> <Do> we, <laughs> can we not say your name enough? We love her. And we love it. Tell us what you want. Tell us who we need to get. We more like auto. I would love to get more autistic therapists on because um, I think I'm we in... need to have. Yeah. Oh, we need mm-hmm. to go. We need to move. We're way over. Yes. Okay. So we need to roll. Also, stay tuned because literally, if you need to hear a great lecture in the next twenty-four minutes, Renee Garrett's on doing a fantastic talk. So stick around, folks. Hop off this. Hop on hers. But thank you. As always, be sure to check us out first by podcast on Instagram. Check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review, preferably go team. And then Chasing the Swallow is out and available for 13.5 ASHA CEUs through Speech Therapy PD. So I'm learning to lean in and say that out loud. So there's that. Did it. Cold sweat ensues. And Make sure that you go back tonight and into your account and complete the rest of the course content for tonight. And thank you. We hope you enjoy this. We love this. And be sure to check us out at ASHA in New Orleans because Erin and I will for sure be there. Yes. And, and it's our and it's our Taylor's birthday that she'll be 30. Ooh, I yes. Say that. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so Taylor's birthday, we're in Annalise's hometown. So bring it on, baby. But yes, but seriously, folks, thanks for coming and uh, being part of First Bite. Yep. So thank you. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Feeding Matters 
guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.